I invite you to stand as you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning at verse 44. Hear God's word. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sunlight failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In our text, Luke mentions three profound incidents of Jesus' last moments. There was this thick darkness, and then the veil of the temple was split from top to bottom. And then he mentions Jesus' dying words to his father. Luke also records three responses to Jesus' crucifixion. The crowds in verse 48 left deeply grieved, beating their breasts. His disciples, including the women, watched the events from a distance and appeared to be numbed and in a state of shock. Meanwhile, a pagan Roman centurion publicly praises God and acknowledges Jesus' divine purpose. A word about Roman centurions as we look through his eyes this, this afternoon. Friends, Rome was a military state which ruled, which ruled the world by might, not by economics. Everett Ferguson in his book, Backgrounds of Early Christianity says, the military safeguarded Roman peace and so made possible social and cultural development. So there goes the army, there goes Rome. And centurions were professional soldiers who had 100 fighting men under their command. Military historians note that these were the most important tactical officers in the Roman army. And Luke 7 tells us that at peacetime, many of these centurions ordered many civil service functions. You remember the centurion who built synagogues while occupying Jerusalem. Centurions were men of power, and they had access to the equestrian order, which was the most desirable social position in first-century class-conscious Rome. They received the bulk of their pay, usually after 20 to 25 years of faithful service to the emperor. And every year, Every year, they had to swear allegiance to the emperor. So imagine you're working for 20, 25 years, and you will be paid at the end of this period only if you're honorably discharged, only if you swear allegiance to the divine emperor. 
So the question I have in my mind is, why would this centurion risk everything and make such a public confession here in Luke 23? Here's what I want us to realize this afternoon, is that when you gaze at the cross long enough, especially through the eyes of the centurion, you will behold the justice, the mercy, and the love of God on display. And like the centurion, you will discover a deep conviction within that would move you to deny self, take up your cross, and follow the Savior daily. The centurion witnessed the greatest injustice ever recorded in history because crucifixion was the most hideous form of torture and death. It was the chief form of execution in first century Rome. Seneca, a Roman historian and a contemporary of Jesus, wrote, Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop, rather than it expiring once for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, and drawing the breath of life amid long drawn out agony, he would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross. Because of its brutality, crucifixion was almost always inflicted on the lower class and was designed to subject the victim to the utmost indignity. Think about why they were casting lots for his clothes. Think about your Savior hanging on a cross. The chief priests knew this, and they knew that Pilate had the authority to carry out this most vile form of punishment. He must have, the centurion must have witnessed uh, Jesus' first encounter with Pilate, who declared in Luke 23 and verse 4, I find no fault in this man. He observed the venomous hatred spewed out against Jesus, especially when the crowds chose Barabbas, a convicted enemy of the state. The centurion heard the sneers and the, un and, and the insults which were hurled at Jesus by many, even from a condemned insurgent hanging on a cross. Even his soldiers under his command joined in the spectacle and mocked Jesus. Suddenly at high noon, the sun refused to shine and thick darkness covered the land and this lasted for over three hours. What kind of criminal is this Jesus, he must have thought to himself. Then out of the darkness, a voice bleated out, Father, into thy hand. I commit my spirit. Riken, commenting on this text, notes that the centurion was so deeply impressed by what he had seen and heard that he could not keep silent. Moved by the Holy Spirit, this pagan who lived in spiritual darkness, one who was lost and was, and was without hope, this hardened soldier saw the light and affirmed that Jesus was innocent without sin. And in the darkness, he caught a glimpse of the Lord's divine justice. At great risk to his career and his station in life, this centurion humbled himself 
and did something which Handel described as offensive. He publicly praised God and swore allegiance not to Caesar, but to the righteous Jesus hanging on a cross. How can such a high-ranking Roman official honor this criminal as divine, seeing that he had been nailed to the cross by Rome itself? On gazing upon the cross, this centurion was made willing to lay aside his social and cultural dominance with all of its accompanying earthly privileges. Here was a mighty soldier at the prime of his life, at the height of his career, in control of a weakened nation. And he must have heard the words of Jesus say in Luke 9 and verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. The centurion also witnessed the rich mercies of God. He may have overheard Jesus addressing the heartbroken women on the way to Golgotha. He did overhear Jesus praying for those who were rejecting and ridiculing him, asking that his father would forgive them. The centurion also heard Jesus offering the promise of paradise, not deletion fields, to a condemned criminal. Why would this condemned man show so much grace and restraint at a time when he should be angry and at least be begging for mercy? The Holy Spirit used Jesus' conduct on the cross to severely impact this centurion psyche. What Rome had designated as the chief form of capital punishment has now become the chief means through which God's people may see his tender mercies. Oh, the wonderful cross. The centurion witnessed the amazing unselfishness of the crucified Christ as Jesus prayed to his father. Jesus must be dying to fulfill his father's good plans. He may have thought to himself, I am a man under orders. Am I willing to sacrifice all to the glory of Rome as this man is doing to the glory of his father? If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. The centurion also witnessed the unfathomable love of God. He observed the entire, the entire saga of Jesus' arrest, the trials, the beatings, and now the execution. Amid the chaotic atmosphere, the centurion was enabled to see the matchless love of God right there on display. Standing front and center, he witnessed Jesus, the Son of God, bowing down in loving obedience and surrendering to the will of his heavenly Father. Hengel observes that the heart of the Christian message in first century Rome ran counter not only to the Roman political thinking, but to the whole ethos of religion everywhere in the Mediterranean. And to many, Christianity was a perverse an extravagant superstition. But Paul says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And the folly here is not silliness, it's mania 
and to a Roman in first century Israel, it, it is maniacal to think of God hanging on a cross. But to those who believe, the cross is the one objective, irrefutable proof of God's love for his people. For we believe that on the cross, Almighty God took the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, with which he came into this earth as a baby, took the acquired righteousness that he had gained by living in obedience to the law on this earth, and he bathed it on us as he takes our sin and lavishes it upon the Lamb of God hanging on a cross. This is what we believe. And by God's grace, this centurion joined the group who believed this, and he witnessed the justice, the mercy, and the love of God embodied in this one who died on the cross. He must have left Golgotha with the deepest conviction that moved him to deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow the crucified Christ. So as you and I gaze upon the cross through the eyes of the centurion, we will observe our Savior delighting the heart of our Heavenly Father. And like the centurion, you and I will be compelled to praise our God and declare Jesus as the righteous one of God. As you continue to gaze upon the cross, I pray that the Holy Spirit would move you to deny yourself and bow down to the work of Christ in every area of your life until he has made you to look like Jesus, holy and obedient to the Father. We know the cost, death to self, travail of soul, the narrowing down of your interests to one alone. Take up your cross daily, my friends, and as you do so, know that crucifixion means death to your natural way of life and thinking, death to the way your family did things, death to your ambitions and your need for approval, death to selfishness, death to what is convenient for you, death to comfort. Think about what it means to follow Christ to be conformed to the image of Christ crucified. It means humility, obedience, holiness, and restraint. I agree it is a hard place, and not many want to enter it. It is the way our Savior went. And he invites you into this place so that he could make you holy. Jesus is not inviting you into a place he, he refused to go. No, he has been there before us, following his head, demonstrating the character of God in the flesh. Jesus knows the way. He knows the hardness of the way, and he has promised to work within each of you to fulfill the Lord's plans for your life but it means relinquishing your way of looking at things again. And you and I are made fit when we, like the centurion, surrender to the Lord.
and we watch our great Redeemer bow down once again to his work in us. And we deny self, and we take up his cross daily, and we follow Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this centurion.